This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. What do you get when you cross a lawyer who is also a judge? His wife, who is determined to expose widespread corruption and who is also running for mayor and a menacing mafia of monsters. You get death and a whole lot of it. This is Monsters. Vincent Sherry Jr. was a man of many titles. A respected lawyer, a dedicated judge, a loving husband, a devoted father, the list goes on. He started law school as a young adult and immediately enlisted in the Air Force as a legal representative. He worked his way up the ranks until he was a colonel in intelligence as well as military judge advocate. During his time in the military, Vince married Margaret Joyce Smith and the couple went on to have four children together. Lynn, Vince Jr., Eric, and Leslie. When the children were young, the family moved frequently from bases all across the continental United States to a long stint at a U.S. base in Japan. In 1971, Vincent retired from the Air Force after 20 years of service. By then, their children were grown and living away from home or studying at college, so they decided it was the perfect time to pursue their shared passion for travel. Military life had been full of many cities and countries, but now they wanted to explore on their own terms without the lingering worry of being moved when they'd only just settled in. After a year of traveling, Vincent and Margaret decided they were ready for the second chapter of their working lives and they returned to the United States. They decided to settle in one of the places they had enjoyed living in the most during Vincent's service, the city of Biloxi in Mississippi. Biloxi is a coastal area nestled along the Gulf of Mexico. It's famous for pristine white sandy beaches and a vibrant seafood culture. For Vincent and Margaret, the city offered the perfect balance of relaxation and professional opportunities and it only took a few short years before they had established themselves as pillars of the community. Vincent immediately started practicing law again as a defense attorney while Margaret was elected to a position on the city council. Ten years later, Vincent started his own criminal defense practice along with his best friend and local lawyer Pete Halat. In 1986, Vincent was appointed by the Mississippi governor to serve as interim Second Circuit Court judge. Life was good for the couple. Vincent and Margaret were both successful in their own ways and their four children were out making their mark on the world. But all that changed on Monday, September 14, 1987. Each morning for the 11 months since Vincent had been appointed as a circuit court judge, his day had started at the county courthouse. That Monday morning was no different. He followed his normal routine, and during a court break, he changed into his running gear to catch a quick jog. Later on in the day, he spent some time with his new law partner, Pete Halat, got a haircut at the barber, and refueled his station wagon for an upcoming drive to Baton Rouge. 
The next day, the couple were planning to drive two hours to visit their youngest child, Leslie, at her college campus. While Vincent was at work that day, Margaret spent her time preparing for her upcoming mayoral campaign. At the center of Margaret's campaign was her claim that she had uncovered a major corruption scheme which had infiltrated to the highest levels of local government in Biloxi. She told her friends that she was working with the FBI to expose the fraud and that all she had to do now was sit back and wait for them to arrest the target of her allegations, the current mayor, Gerald Blessy. Although the FBI hadn't given Margaret a time frame of when that arrest might take place, she told her husband that she intended to go public with what she knew the day after they returned from visiting Leslie. But Margaret never got the chance. At around 7 p.m. that night, Margaret was on the phone to a friend when Vincent began to complain that she was hungry. She abruptly hung up the phone with a loud clatter. That was the last time anyone ever spoke to her. No one knows if it was minutes or hours later that a stolen yellow Ford cruised by the Sherry's home. It stopped at the end of their quiet street, and a few moments later there was a knock on the door. Vincent was still dressed in his court clothes when he welcomed the visitor through their front door while Margaret was partway through undressing in the bedroom. At some point in the following few minutes, the visitor pulled out a 22 caliber Ruger pistol fitted with a makeshift silencer and shot Vince square in the face. Then they walked into the bedroom and did the same to Margaret, who was sitting at her dresser removing her earrings. Two days later, Vincent's law partner knocked on the front door looking for him after he failed to turn up for a court hearing. He noticed that both of the couple's cars were parked in the driveway and that their dogs were barking wildly as he approached the front door. When there was no answer, Pete leaned against the window to look inside the house. At the same time, his elbow nudged against the front door and it opened to reveal the inside of the Sherry's home. Pete walked in far enough to see a scene he would never forget. The body of Vincent lying in the middle of the living room with blood splattered across the floor, walls, and ceiling. He immediately retreated out of the house and shouted for a neighbor to call the police. When officers arrived and entered the home, they found Vincent shot to death right where Pete had discovered him. Margaret was found in the couple's bedroom, slumped against the bed with her feet under the dresser as if she'd slid down to sit on the floor. She had also been shot in the head. Over the next few hours, a crime scene investigation got underway and the bodies were removed for autopsy. The results showed that Vincent had been shot at point-blank range through the mouth. The shot had shattered his teeth on an inward trajectory. Margaret had been shot four times point-blank, but hers were to the back of the head. Unlike the bloody brutality of Vincent's death, Margaret had just one stream of blood flowing from her temple down to her chest. Based on the amount of blood found around Vincent's body, investigators determined that he was still alive when Margaret was killed. They believe that after she was shot, the killer returned to finish him off for good. Vincent was shot in the face once more, with the bullet entering his head just below the right eye. Inside the bedroom, forensic investigators found two bullets in the wall which they assumed had been fired before Margaret was killed. Aside from that and the blood spatter from Vincent's shooting, the scene was eerily tidy. There was no sign of forced entry and no evidence of a violent altercation before the shooting. Nothing about the home looked out of place except for foam rubber which was found around the bullet wounds and on the floor beside the bodies. Officers suspected that someone had shot the bullets through a pillow or used a homemade silencer during the shooting. With all of that in mind, as well as the fact that nothing had been taken from the home, investigators quickly determined that the murder was not some random spur-of-the-moment attack or robbery. It was a professional hit. 
Given the couple's role in both the legal system and local politics, it was easy to conclude they had been targeted. But the truth about why wouldn't be so easy to uncover. Eric Sherry was the first of the children to find out about his parents' murder, but he wasn't given the dignity or respect of an official notification. Instead, one of his colleagues called to offer their condolences after they heard about the murders on a radio news broadcast. Even in those days, the media were scavengers, preying on others at the worst moments of their lives. That put Eric in the unenviable position of informing his siblings that not one, but both of their parents had been killed, inside their own home. As each sibling found out the terrible news, they made plans to get to Biloxi as soon as they could. Lynn was the oldest child, and she took responsibility for sharing the news with as many of her parents' friends as she could. It was an exhausting task, and with each new declaration, she felt more and more detached from what she was saying. Finally, she decided to call her dad's best friend, Pete, to get some more information and to find out anything that could help her make sense of what had happened. Pete answered the phone right away and told her he didn't want to give her any details over the phone. It would only upset her further and he wanted to wait until she arrived in town. But Lynn wasn't taking no for an answer and she pressed Pete for more. Eventually, he gave in and walked her through the events of that morning. Pete told Lynn that he had gone around to the house after Vincent hadn't shown up for his docket. He said, quote, I walked a little into the house and I saw your dad's feet. I didn't want to find your mom. Soon after that, the police arrived and took over the scene. Pete didn't have much more information to share, but he told Lynn to bring all of the siblings over to the law office when they arrived. In the meantime, he would speak to his contacts to see if there was anything more he could learn about the murders before they met. When the four Sherry children were reunited, they gathered in the foyer of the office which their father had worked in for more than 15 years. Pete sat them down and before they could ask a single question, he told them, quote, Listen, there's something you need to understand. There's nothing you can do to bring your parents back to life. Nothing. The best thing you can do is drop it. The siblings felt that Pete's reaction was an abrupt way to start the conversation about their parents' deaths. He answered a few of their questions, but there was nothing substantial to his responses. It was only as Lynn was leaving that she considered another alternative. Maybe Pete had found out something about the murders or her parents, and he didn't want to ruin the children's lasting memories of them as good, honest people. The double murder of such prominent members of the area hit the Biloxi community hard. Residents demanded action, and they demanded it quick. When officials announced they didn't have any suspects in the case just a few days after the murders, a number of local Gulf Coast businessmen joined forces and offered a $50,000 reward for information. Over the coming days, the story spread and reports were published in the New York and Los Angeles Times. When the media began running the story on the front page, many local businesses reported a dramatic increase in the number of gun sales. Even the mayor got involved when he announced that he was funding a task force to solve the case. The most obvious first line of inquiry was to establish who would want Vincent and Margaret dead, and who was most likely to benefit. They started with Vincent. First, they needed to establish if there were any criminals with a grudge against him for a harsh punishment he had handed down in his role as a judge. Or maybe he had failed to defend one of his clients and they had lost their case. When they looked at that angle, they found plenty of people who fit that description. There was a cocaine-smuggling preacher who had accused Vince of taking a huge fee and not protecting him from prison. 
There was a mobster from Chicago who was a local strip club mogul whose reputation as a ruthless businessman was well known throughout Biloxi's underworld. But most promising of all was a former cocaine-smuggling client named Betty Inman who had once expressed her desire for Vince to leave his wife and join her in a life of crime. When he declined her proposal and subsequently failed to get her out of a prison sentence, her love letters became death threats. Apparently, she told anyone who would listen that she would kill Vince if she got the chance. There was a small problem with that lead, however. Betty had been in prison at the time of the murders. But if they followed the suspicion that the murders had been a hit, there was every possibility she had arranged the whole thing from behind bars. Betty was a strong suspect, and her name stayed on the top of the list for quite some time. While investigators focused on Vincent and Margaret's past, forensic technicians went over every inch of their home. They agreed with the early determination that the shooting was a professional hit. Nothing appeared to be missing from the house. Vincent's wallet was in his back pocket, Margaret's purse was in her desk, and her safe was untouched. The mayor was true to his word, and significant police resources were directed to the case. Police scuba divers were deployed to scour Biloxi's back bay and the ponds at the nearby golf course to search for the murder weapon, but the search turned up nothing related to the case. There was one other aspect of the crime that officers were struggling to explain. When had the murders actually occurred? The medical examiner was able to determine the couple had been dead for some time, but it was unclear if they had been killed the night before they were found or the night before that. The tests to pinpoint the time of death would take another few days to process, and in the meantime, officers worked from the assumption that the hit had been carried out on either Monday or Tuesday night. Narrowing down the timeline became more confusing when a local parole officer provided a statement where he swore he had spoken to Vincent about one of his parolees on Tuesday morning. Either way, it appeared that the killer had acted at a time when the couple were expected to be out of town for the visit to see their daughter in Baton Rouge. This meant no one had been looking for them the day before they were found. That element indicated one thing. The killer had either been watching and learning about the couple's habits from afar, or they were someone the couple knew well enough to know they were going out of town. That theory was backed up by the fact there was no sign of forced entry. Everything pointed to the couple having welcomed the murderer inside their home. Even the behavior of Margaret and Vincent's two beloved dachshunds corroborated that theory. When officers arrived on the scene after the bodies were found, the two tiny dogs had become extremely defensive. They barked and bared their teeth, and no one could get close to the victims until the dogs were removed from the scene. That contrasted with how the dogs behaved when someone they knew came close. In those instances, they would relax and wave their little tails in joy. When Vince's background failed to turn up anyone other than Betty as a suspect, the investigators turned their attention to Margaret. Maybe all her talk about exposing citywide corruption had put her in someone's crosshairs and that person had decided there was only one way to guarantee she would keep her mouth shut. That theory seemed even more likely when officers spoke to Sherry's oldest daughter, Lynn. She told them about a conversation she had with her mother four months earlier when Margaret had told her, quote, Things are getting hot down here, maybe too hot to handle. I've nearly got enough to blow the lid off of this town. I just hope to God they don't come after my children. Margaret had been set on exposing corruption in Biloxi for as long as Lynn could remember, and so she brushed off the ominous comment just like she always did. 
Her mother's desires to become mayor had always seemed more like a passion project than something that was life-threateningly dangerous. But now that both of her parents had been shot to death in what seemed like a professional hit, Lynn began to wonder. Had Margaret stumbled upon information someone was willing to kill over? Or worse yet, was Margaret's longtime arch-rival to blame? Gerald Blessy was the mayor of Biloxi, and that made him public enemy number one in Margaret's eyes. Where others saw a decorated Vietnam vet and a man who wanted to help the disenfranchised black community, Margaret saw a man who misspent government funds and made friends with underworld crime figures. There was nothing secretive about their dislike of each other. Many council meetings had descended into chaos off the back of one of their disputes. News reports made out that the hatred was a partisan issue. Margaret was a conservative Republican, while Gerald was a liberal Democrat. But Margaret's feelings ran much deeper than a political disagreement. After all, she was married to a Democrat. She had never been able to prove that Gerald was crooked, but she believed it deeply and she made sure everyone knew exactly how she felt about the elected mayor. Gerald was only too happy to play the same game and regularly threw out accusations that Margaret was racist, insensitive, and stuck in her old way of doing things. In 1985, Margaret gave up her council seat to launch a campaign to run against Gerald for the seat of mayor. It was a closely contested battle that Gerald ultimately won by a margin of just 500 votes. Despite the loss, Margaret refused to back off. At every opportunity, she showed up to council meetings to voice opposition to Gerald's policies. She used various voter referendum processes to block his proposals and force him to follow through on promises he had made during the election. She made no secret that she was going to run for mayor again in 1989, and many believed that her second shot would result in a win. After all, she had her not-so-secret weapon locked and ready to fire. She told friends and acquaintances that she had uncovered corruption at the highest levels of local government, and she was working with the FBI to expose it. Like every city, Biloxi had its dark side. Beyond the sandy shores lay a hidden world that Margaret was determined to expose. Set behind the main drag was an area known as The Strip, and like every other place with the same name, The Strip was a central hub for everything and everyone that society likes to look down on. Sex workers, gamblers, those experiencing homelessness, down-and-outs, and drug addicts. That's not to mention the abundance of cheap motels and smoky bars. But the Strip was also the central hub of operations for Biloxi's network of criminal enterprises. For decades, Biloxi had been home to a succession of corrupt mayors, police chiefs, and sheriffs who benefited from letting the Strip go unreformed and unchanged. They used their positions to enable criminal organizations to operate in plain sight, and they skimmed a cut off the top in exchange for looking the other way. In the 60s, a few of the syndicates joined forces and came to be known as the Dixie Mafia. They set up their headquarters figuratively and literally on the Strip and set to work taking over the local gambling, sex trade, and drug dealing operations. When that worked out better than they expected, they expanded their operation across the neighboring southern states. They also brought in their repertoire of ways to make money, and before long they were robbing banks, stealing cars, and plotting high-stakes heists. All of that continued through the 70s and 80s, and as the network of Dixie Mafia members continued to grow, so too did the officials who were being paid to turn a blind eye. In more recent times, the city announced that after a series of investigations, it had removed all the dirty cops and politicians, and the mayor announced that he was set to clean up the strip once and for all. But Margaret believed Gerald was on the take, and she had staked her entire reputation on proving it. 
Despite Margaret and Gerald despising each other, investigators told Lynn that there was no evidence to indicate he had been involved in the cold-blooded murders of her parents. Certainly there was no physical evidence, but that wasn't unique to him. There wasn't any physical evidence to tie anybody to the scene. But a couple of weeks after the investigation began, Lynn found out that Gerald hadn't even been formally questioned after the deaths. The police chief and the director of public safety for the city reported directly to the mayor, which meant there was certainly a conflict of interest in him directing the investigation but not being questioned. Unfortunately, her concerns fell on deaf ears, and it was about to become clear why. Investigators were more interested in proving Vincent was dirty or the killer was much closer to home. That was the moment Lynn and her siblings realized that the corruption their mother was set on exposing might have a role to play in the investigation. They weren't sure who they could trust, and they decided there was good reason to start an inquiry of their own. Because the house was still cordoned off, they began by speaking to their parents' neighbors instead. That's when Lynn discovered that one of them had seen a yellow Ford Fairmont slowly driving down the street at around 10 p.m. on the night of the murders, and he recognized the driver as a local police officer. When the siblings asked why he hadn't told the police such important information, he gave them a solid and shocking reason. The cop who had come knocking the next morning was the same one he had seen trawling the street the night before. It could have been a coincidence, or the cop could have simply been doing a nightly patrol, but it seemed to confirm their suspicions that they couldn't trust anyone, not even the cops. The day after the siblings learned about the yellow Ford, they attended the wake for both of their parents. More than 1,200 mourners attended, including local politicians, lawyers, and even the mobster Vince had once so proudly defended. When it came time for family and friends to share their eulogies, they chose to focus on the joyful memories and the good times they had spent with the murdered couple. All of them touched on the good that Vince and Margaret had done in the community and the way their loss would be felt, especially for their children and grandchildren. When it was Pete's turn to speak, he spoke about the many years he had worked alongside his best friend and the way he admired Margaret for standing up for open and honest government. But there was something written between the lines of his speech. Something that only came out two weeks later when Pete announced that he was going to run for mayor in Margaret's honor. After the emotional service, Lynn decided she needed to tell someone what she had learned about the yellow Ford and the suspicious cop. She spoke to one of the sheriff's investigators who worked completely independent of the mayor's office. He immediately connected the vehicle to a theft from a local car dealer that had been reported on the same night as they suspected the murders had occurred. He also admitted that the description of the driver matched a narcotics detective from the Biloxi Police Department. A few days after the wake, the medical examiner announced that the definitive time of death was Monday night. That was backed up by the fact that Margaret hadn't taken her nightly medication, which she took religiously before going to bed. The ME announced that the time of death was a three-hour window between 7 and 10 p.m. on the night of Monday, September 14th. The statement from the parole officer was determined to be flawed and the sighting of the yellow Ford at 10 p.m. became the central focus of the investigation. Well, it should have, but the cops wrote that off as a flawed statement as well. Gee, I wonder why. Instead, the entire investigation pivoted to focus on a surprise suspect, the couple's own son, Eric. There was plenty of evidence that made investigators suspicious of Eric. First of all, he had arrived in town just a couple of hours after first hearing from the colleague who had heard the radio report. That was long before any official announcement about the murders and hours before his siblings arrived in town. 
It was so soon after the discovery of the bodies that investigators felt that Eric must have been close to Biloxi at the time of the murders. Otherwise, how did he get there so fast? Eric possibly being in the area around the time of death was also backed up by the fact that he had told a friend that he was due to visit the Gulf Coast that week. That was something he failed to tell the police during his first interview, and when he was questioned about the trip, he said he had a DJing gig which he had pulled out of because of his own work commitments. Except, when officers looked into his story, they found out that he had been let go from his regular job not long before he planned the visit. Local officers also claimed that Eric was a small-time drug dealer who used his DJ side hustle to cover for his less legitimate activities. They claimed that Vincent had gotten Eric off the hook whenever he was caught dealing, and that on the night the bodies were discovered, he was seen at a local dive bar which did not match the behavior they expected of a grieving son. But by far the most explosive puzzle piece that tied Eric to the murders was that the investigators had discovered he was adopted, and Eric didn't know it. The only child who was aware of his history was Lynn as she was around seven years old when Eric was taken in. Margaret's brother was Eric's biological father. When he was just eight months old, his biological parents had separated and he was left with his father, but he decided that he wasn't cut out for the single father thing, so he asked his sister Margaret to take Eric in. Vincent and Margaret agreed they would tell Eric when he was old enough to understand, but as the years passed by, the perfect moment never seemed to arrive, and ultimately it became a secret they felt would do more harm than good to reveal. The investigators speculated that Eric had somehow discovered the truth about his origins and confronted his parents. When the conversation didn't go well, he had flown into a rage and murdered the people who had betrayed him his whole life. Before they spoke to Eric about their theory, they questioned Lynn about the secret adoption. She begged them not to tell Eric on top of everything he was already dealing with. She told them that her brother had nothing to do with the murders and that all of their concerns about his movements had a reasonable explanation if they would just take the time to listen. Investigators questioned Eric for hours and eventually he agreed to take a polygraph test. But right before he was due to take the test, they found out that the info about Eric's job was incorrect and he was actually working at the time he said he was. He wasn't a solid alibi for the time of the murders, but it was enough to call the timeline about his movements into question. After hours of time wasted pursuing Eric, he was finally removed from the list of suspects. By then, Lynn was all in running a private investigation of her own. Months had passed with no solid leads, and the task force that the mayor had announced right after the murders had been wound back to just a handful of officers. One of them was the sheriff's investigator she had trusted with the information about the yellow Ford seen by her parents' neighbor. They would occasionally exchange information with Lynn about the case, and in return, she shared anything she learned during her own investigation. It was through that connection that she learned about a link between her father's law office and a prison scam being run out of Angola. The con was a classic lonely heart swindle. In the pre-internet age, these scams operated through newspaper personal ads. The perpetrator would create fake ads and pretend to seek genuine relationships and initiate contact with those who responded. They'd build trust through correspondence, like writing letters or long telephone calls, and then they would fabricate emergencies and ask their victims for money. This type of scam preys on people seeking love and companionship and ultimately cons them out of significant sums of money, usually over a long period of time. The relevance to Vincent's murder was that one of the phone numbers being used to contact the targets was none other than the offices of Vincent and Pete's law firm in Biloxi. 
Phone records which were pulled as a part of the investigation showed hundreds of calls between the office and the prison in Angola between December of 1986 and September of 1987. When Pete was questioned about the calls, all he had to say was that they were privileged conversations between him and one of his clients who was incarcerated there, a man by the name of Kirksey Nix. Kirksey was serving a life sentence for murdering a grocery store executive in New Orleans. He also just happened to be one of the leaders of the Dixie Mafia. Kirksey's twist on the Lonely Heart scam was that he targeted homosexual men through gay magazines. When they responded to his ads, he would arrange for them to be sent letters containing sexually explicit photos which he had cut out of magazines. Kirksey's girlfriend, Lorray Sharp, worked for Pete and Vince, and when they weren't watching, she facilitated the phone calls and letters which were sent to the victims. Investigators weren't convinced by Pete's claims that the calls were innocent. After all, why would a lawyer need to talk to his client twice a day over such a long period of time? On top of that, Kirksey Nix had exhausted all avenues of appeal against his sentence, so there would be no need for him to have such frequent communications with his lawyer. Investigators traveled to Angola in an effort to find out if the scam and the Sherry's murder were connected, but the head of the Dixie Mafia was no fool and he refused to admit any involvement in either crime. However, he did seem to take great pleasure in being implicated in the murders, especially because he knew the detectives didn't have anything definitive to connect him to them. That line of inquiry seemed to be the last solid lead on the case. Within six months of the murders, the investigation had changed hands dozens of times. Lead detectives had been moved and replaced. The trustworthy sheriff's investigator had been demoted and then pushed out, and it seemed like there was little interest in solving the case at all. By then, Lynn had interviewed dozens of friends of her parents and anyone else with even a loose connection to the murders. But the one thing she did achieve was to piss a few people off. It wasn't long before she was receiving regular death threats to her home telephone warning her to back off. It was clear that the threats were designed to get her to back down, but they had the opposite effect. Lynn believed they were a sign that she was on the right track and that it wouldn't be long before she uncovered exactly who was responsible for her parents' murders. While the case was cooling off for officials, it was heating up for Lynn and she decided to hire a private investigator to accelerate her progress. Rex Armistead was an ex-detective with a solid reputation for getting results. Almost as soon as she brought him in, her investment began to pay off. What he discovered brought the shadow of suspicion much closer to home. Vincent's closest friend, Pete Halott. In the months after the murders, Pete had been seen driving a flashy Mercedes. Not too unusual for a lawyer, except when Rex got one of his cop friends to run the plates, he discovered that the registered owner of the vehicle was Mike Gillick. Mike Gillick was often referred to as the godfather of Biloxi. Not in a good way, in a dawn kind of way. He owned a number of motels and strip clubs across the city and he had been prosecuted multiple times for running brothels out of the back of his venues. Mike was also closely connected to the Dixie Mafia via his best friend, Kirksey Nix the same guy who was running the Lonely Hearts scam out of the Louisiana State Penitentiary in Angola. And just like Kirksey, Mike's personal attorney since as far back as 1979 had been Pete. So now we have a lawyer who represents a guy running a scam from prison and who is driving a vehicle owned by another local crime boss. Not illegal, but highly suspicious. Rex helped Lynn connect the dots between those facts and the murders of her parents by showing her how Margaret's death benefited Kirksey, Mike, and Pete. 
Margaret was set to run for mayor based on promises of ridding the city of corruption and cracking down on criminal enterprises operating from the city. With her out of the picture, Pete was free to run for mayor, which would put him in a position to help his two friends run those exact same schemes. The new information was concerning and suspicious, but it didn't trigger the breakthrough Lynn had hoped for. When she took what Rex had discovered to investigators, they brushed her off once again. There was nothing solid to implicate Pete directly in the Lonely Heart scam and no evidence he was involved in the illegal activities of his clients. Once again, the investigation stalled, this time for two years. In 1989, Pete was elected as the new mayor of Biloxi, beating out Margaret's longtime opponent, Gerald Blessy. The Sherry children had all attempted to get on with their lives, but the absence of any arrests or convictions in their parents' brutal murders hung like a dark cloud over their existence. It was beginning to feel like justice would be eternally out of reach. And then, Rex spoke to Bobby Joe Fabian. Bobby Joe Fabian was serving a life sentence for aggravated assault at Louisiana State Penitentiary alongside his Dixie Mafia colleague, Kirksey Nix. He was also well known to Rex as the pair had crossed paths years earlier when the investigator was still on the force. The story goes that Bobby Joe had been cornered in a ditch off a highway by Rex after a car chase. Bobby Joe knew he was caught so he threw his gun down and thrust his hands in the air and offered to surrender peacefully. But instead of simply slapping the cuffs on Bobby Joe right away, Rex pointed his gun at him and ordered him to pick his gun up off the ground. The implication was that if Bobby Joe went for his gun, Rex could shoot him and claim self-defense. That incident was one of the reasons Rex had left the force in the first place. Rex and Bobby Joe didn't trust each other by any stretch, but the prisoner knew that Rex meant business and he agreed to tell him what he knew. Bobby Joe told Rex that he was involved in the Lonely Heart scam being run out of the prison by Kirksey. He indicated that the scams were netting his boss more than $100,000 a year, all from the safety of his prison cell. He was also able to clear up what Kirksey planned to use the money for. He had been promised if he got enough cash together that he'd be able to bribe the state governor for a pardon, which was the only way he was ever going to be set free. Then Bobby Joe got to Vincent and Margaret's murders. He told Rex that he hadn't been involved in the killings, but he was in the room when the plans were made, and he also knew why. Kirksey had been planning to buy his pardon for years, but first he needed a way to store the money until he had enough to convince the governor to approve his request. That's where his lawyer Pete Halat came in. It turns out that Pete was laundering Kirksey's earnings through a trust account controlled by the law firm. Pete was well aware of the Lonely Heart scam, and he made sure Kirksey's girlfriend had plenty of time to make calls and manage the incoming funds. But in December of 1986, Kirksey discovered that more than $500,000 had gone missing from the trust account. When Kirksey questioned Pete about the missing money, he said he had nothing to do with it, but he knew who did. His law partner, Vincent. Naturally, Kirksey was infuriated and he called a meeting between Pete, Mike Gillick, and several other inmates, including Bobby Joe. During the meeting, Kirksey ordered a hit on Vincent and he contracted a career killer named John Ransom to carry out his plans. Bobby Joe told Rex that he didn't believe Vincent had stolen the money. In fact, he was sure the judge didn't even know about the account in the first place. Nonetheless, the hit was ordered, and on September 14, 1987, the contract was complete. 
It was a terrible breakthrough, but a breakthrough nonetheless, and Lynn finally had some answers as to why her parents had been murdered. But when Rex and Lynn took this new information to the Biloxi Police Department and then to the DA, they didn't get the response they hoped for. Pete had only just been announced as mayor, and the department were cautious about making any moves without solid proof that Pete was involved. And let's not forget the police department are technically employees of the mayor, so they weren't about to go after their boss without irrefutable evidence. But the sheriff's office had no such qualms. They sent two investigators to Angola to find out if Bobby Joe's statement stood up to scrutiny. He gave them much of the same statement he had provided to Rex, except this time he added that not only had Pete gone along with the plan to murder Vince, he had pushed for it, and he requested that Margaret be added as a kind of package deal. Finally, investigators had a solid motive. Pete wanted Vincent dead so he could continue to profit from his involvement in Kirksey's scam, and he needed Margaret out of the picture so he could run for mayor and help out his mafia mates. The sheriff's department decided to keep all this information to themselves until they had all the pieces of the puzzle put together. The last thing they needed was for somebody at the police department to tip off Pete that he was about to be implicated in the high-profile murders of the Sherrys. They redirected all of their resources to finding the hired gun. That turned out to be the easiest aspect of the investigation so far. John Ransom had been arrested on a murder charge in Georgia, and when his home was searched, investigators found silencers and a roll of foam which matched the debris found at the Sherry's home. While the investigators were piecing together John's involvement, someone tipped off the media that Pete had been implicated in the murders by an informant at the Angola prison. Pete immediately went on the offensive, and he called a press conference to answer questions from the media. He used various defenses, including that he had never met Bobby Joe and questioning whether people would rather believe a convicted murderer or an elected official and respectable citizen. Five days later, he called another press conference where he showed visitor logs from the Angola prison, which showed no record of him having visited on the dates that Bobby Joe had alleged he was making plans for a hit on the couple. Immediately after that press conference, the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of Mississippi made an announcement that the FBI was joining the investigation and a grand jury was being convened to look into the case. Finally, after two years, the family looked like they might get some answers and even some convictions. With the FBI on board, witnesses were re-interviewed and evidence was re-examined. That's when investigators got one of the biggest breaks outside of Bobby Joe's statement. But this time, it came from someone who didn't even know they had held the missing pieces all this time. Charles Ledger was a young attorney Pete had chosen to replace Vince when he was given the circuit court bench seat. He had accompanied Pete to the Sherry's house on the day he found the bodies. Despite being a witness to one of the most critical aspects of any murder investigation, he was only spoken to briefly at the scene, and the statement he gave was never connected to the bigger picture of the investigation. Charles told investigators that a day or two before the murder, a tall, lanky man with a limp in his right leg had come up to him in downtown Biloxi asking where he might find Vince and Sherry. He was a bit put off by the man's appearance, but the request seemed innocent enough, so he replied that Vince was probably at the courthouse. When the face of that particular man was shown on TV in connection with the Sherry murders two years later, Charles immediately recognized it. He was the face of John Ransom. But it wasn't so much that the face was recognizable, it was the limp which stood out in Charles' mind. John Ransom had an artificial right leg to replace one which was shot off years earlier. 
And then Charles revealed more detail about what had happened on the morning when Pete found the bodies. Remember, Pete had told officers that as soon as he saw Vincent's body, he had run outside and told neighbors to call the police. His statement said that he had no idea Margaret was also dead inside the house. But Charles recalled Pete rushing him out of the house and telling him that Vince and Margaret are dead. Pete had been dismissed as a suspect very early on in the investigation. His story seemed credible and there didn't appear to be any obvious motive for him to have his legal partner and friend murdered. Right at the outset, officials learned Vincent had been turned down on a life insurance policy for the new law practice due to his high blood pressure, so there was no financial motive for Pete to murder his partner. But with so many people pointing the finger at him, it was clear that not only was he involved, he might even be one of the instigators of the whole thing. Despite the mounting evidence, it still took two more years for the federal grand jury to indict four people in connection with the double murder. The charges were one count related to the illegal scam and murder conspiracy, another count of wire fraud, and two counts of traveling across state lines with the intent to commit murder for hire. Named in the indictment were Kirksey Nix, Mike Gillick, John Ransom, and Kirksey's girlfriend. There was just one name missing from the docket, Pete Halott. Kirksey, Mike, John, and Loray were all convicted of various offenses for their roles in the murders or the prison scam. However, all three men were acquitted of traveling across state lines with the intent of committing murder for hire on August 8th and 9th, 1987, because the prosecution got the dates wrong on the charges. The Sherry's murders took place more than a month after those August dates. In 1992, Loray Sharp was sentenced to one year in prison. Both Mike Gillick and Kirksey Nix were sentenced to three consecutive five-year terms for the three counts on which they had been found guilty, plus a $100,000 fine. John Ransom was handed a 10-year sentence on top of the 12 years he was already serving for murder. The verdicts in the trial were seen as a victory for the Sherry children, but they still hoped that one day the man behind their parents' murder would face justice. And by now, they believed that person to be Pete Halat. But so many years had passed and it was beginning to look like Pete had orchestrated the perfect murder. Kill off your rivals and make yourself untouchable by getting elected into a powerful position. What he didn't count on was that age-old proverb, there's no honor among thieves, and his so-called mafia mates weren't about to go down without him. In the end, it was Mike Gillick who played the snitch, in exchange for clemency, of course. He revealed that it wasn't John Ransom who had pulled the trigger. The actual killer was a shadowy Dixie Mafia hitman and ex-con Thomas Leslie Holcomb. The driver of the getaway car was an ex-cop named Glenn Cook, and the man behind the whole thing was, of course, none other than Pete Halott. He confirmed what Bobby Joe had told officers about the meeting to plan the hit in Angola. Critically, he was also able to prove that Pete had opened a safe deposit box in Biloxi, which he used to convince Kirksey that Vincent had stolen his money. Finally, investigators had enough to go after the person responsible for Vincent and Margaret's deaths. On October 23, 1996, Pete Halott was indicted for conspiracy to commit murder. It took the jury a week to deliberate before they found him guilty on all charges and he was sentenced to 18 years in prison. Mike Gillick was released after serving nine years of his 20-year sentence. He died of cancer in 2012. The trigger man Thomas Holcomb died in prison in 2005 and Bobby Joe Fabian died in prison in 2012. 
In a final twist, the target of Margaret's corruption allegations, Gerald Blessy, was indicted on a number of charges involving corruption and misappropriation of government funds. He was ultimately acquitted of the charges. Pete Halat was released from prison in 2013. He maintains his innocence in the murders, which is common for narcissistic monsters. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility. Call 911 or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe.